Good morning, and welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, Texas. We are glad you're here. We are an intentional religious community. Whatever your political, economic, and social standing, whatever your preferences and taste in literature, sports teams, or music, well, maybe not country or hip-hop, we really like classical and jazz and blue. Well, welcome everybody. As part of our welcoming, I would like to read a uh, welcoming from the David Pohl. We come to this time and this place to rediscover the wondrous gift of free religious community, to renew our faith in the holiness, goodness, and beauty of life, to reaffirm the way of the open mind and full heart, to rekindle the flame of memory and hope, and to reclaim the vision of an earth made fair with all her people one. If you would now join me in the lighting of chalice and in the reading of the words in our bulletin, in the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. For our call to worship this morning, I'd like to share with you the words of Rabindranath Tagore entitled The Stream of Life. The same stream of life that runs through my veins night and day runs through the world and dances in rhythmic measures. It is the same life that shoots in joy through the dust of the earth in numberless blades of grass and breaks into tumultuous waves of leaves and flowers. It is the same life that is rocked in the ocean cradle of birth and death, in ebb and in flow. I feel my limbs are made glorious by the touch of this world of life, and my pride is from the life throb of ages dancing in my blood this moment. Please join me in affirming the mission statement of First U Austin. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Today's reading comes to us from Ralph Waldo Emerson. These roses under my window make no reference to former roses or to better ones. They are for what they are. They exist with God today. There is no time to them. There is simply the rose. It is perfect in every moment of its existence. Before a leaf bud has burst, its whole life acts. In the full-blown flower, there is no more. In the leafless root, there is no less. Its nature is satisfied, and it satisfies nature in all moments alike. But we postpone or remember, we do not live in the present, but with reverted eye lament the past, or heedless of the riches that surround us, stand on tiptoe to foresee the future. We cannot be happy or strong until we too live with nature in the present, above time. Times of dramatic and rapid change often lead people to question all aspects of their lives. 
Such a time in the United States was in the early 19th century. As America entered the early 1800s, the country began to take its first major steps toward an industrial society. People no longer stayed on the family farm. The first textile mills were established in New England. Improvements in transportation and printing came at a time when hundreds of thousands of new immigrants from Germany and Ireland flooded the country. The old traditional patterns of life were altered, and individuals looked for new ways to live. Some sought community in utopian societies. In the years immediately prior to the American Civil War, over 100 such communities were established in the United States. Some were religious. Some were secular. Some were entirely economic. All sought a better way of life. A few were established by our Unitarian and Universalist forefathers. Their search for a new life in the 1830s and 1840s still speaks to the way we choose to live our life today. The most well-known of these societies relating to our UU ancestors was Brook Farm, established by Unitarian minister George Ripley. Ripley was a graduate of Harvard Divinity School and for 15 years the settled minister at Purchase Street Church in Boston. Increasingly attracted to transcendentalism, in 1840, he attended a Christian Union convention where participants were encouraged to follow the words of 2 Corinthians 6.17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Ripley envisioned a transcendentalist city of God, and plans for the community were made in the home of Ralph Waldo Emerson. The preamble to his Articles of Agreement state the lofty goals of Brook Farm to establish the external relations of life on a basis of wisdom and purity, to apply the principles of justice and love to our social organization in accordance with the laws of divine providence, to substitute a system of brotherly cooperation for one of selfish competition, to institute an attractive, efficient, and productive system of industry, to diminish the desire of excessive accumulation, to guarantee to each other forever the means of physical support and of spiritual progress, and thus to impart a greater freedom, simplicity, truthfulness, refinement, and moral dignity to our mode of life. Those are indeed lofty aims. He organized a joint stock company, raised $11,000 in donations and pledges, bought a 200-acre farm eight miles from Boston and West, and West Roxbury, and called it the Brook Farm Institute of Agriculture and Education. In March of 1841, he gave his final sermon at the Purchase Street Church, and he and his wife moved to Brook Farm. They were soon joined by 13 other adults, and within a year, the community had 70 residents. Work was chosen and assigned based on personal affinity and skills. Since all were expected to work and all work was equally, equally honored, all were paid the same. Farmers, carpenters, and laborers were paid the same as teachers, poets, and philosophers. Education, social class, age, and gender made no difference. This plot of land had previously been a dairy farm, and the soil was rather poor. Nevertheless, they planted a garden. Writer Nathaniel Hawthorne, however, one of the early residents, seems not to have enjoyed the blend of intellect and labor. He later wrote, quote, Mr. Ripley put a four-pronged instrument into my hands, 
which he gave me to understand was called a pitchfork. And he and Mr. Farley, being armed with similar weapons, we all three commenced a gallant attack upon a heap of manure. They opened a school where students were taught history, philosophy, literature, music, Greek, Latin, and German. To achieve their goal of balancing manual labor and the intellect, students were required to work two hours a day. Some of Boston's finest families sent their children there. The school would prove to be Brook Farm's most successful undertaking. The intellectual and social life at Brook Farm were stimulating. They had Elizabethan pageants, Shakespearean plays, concerts, operas, costume parties, and dances. Works of Beethoven were played on the pianoforte. The choir sang the works of Mozart. The works of Dante were read in Italian. As with all UUs, literary societies and reading groups were popular. One resident later recalled, quote, The weeds were scratched out of the earth to the music of Tennyson and Browning. At night, Ripley led philosophical discussions. Others led in stargazing activities. Writer Charles Dana led a group in translating difficult German texts. Many would close their day by joining hands in a circle and repeating, Truth to the cause of God and humanity. Bronson Alcott and Charles Lane visited Brook Farm in the summer of 1843, and Lane critically wrote that he found, quote, 80 or 90 persons playing away their youth and daytime in a miserably joyous, frivolous manner. <laughs> From the beginning, there had been a shortage of housing, so additional buildings were constructed, increasing their debt. Work also began on a three-story high main building that would provide more living quarters, reading rooms, assembly hall, and a central dining room. Many of those who had given pledges of support were unable to fulfill their commitment. Struggling financially, in early 1844, the community was reorganized based on the communitarian socialist proposals of French utopian philosopher Charles Fourier. New workers joined Brook Farm, but many of the transcendentalist poets and writers left. Various industries were attempted. A sewing department made capes, caps, and collars for sale in Boston stores. Shoemaking, along with the manufacture of sashes, blinds, pewter lamps, and pewter pots, generated a little additional revenue. But not enough. Criticism of Brook Farm began to circulate. Charles Fourier, the utopian writer, had believed that sex should follow the same patterns as work. That is, it should be based on attraction, alternation, and variety. <laughs> Unfounded, rumors of varied and alternating sexual partners began to spread. Some parents withdrew their children from the school. Some parents opposed the equality or leveling up, as it was called, practice at the Brook Farm School. One financial boat, Brat Backer, wrote to Ripley complaining about the presence of what he called impure children and called the social mixing of the children an enormous evil. In 1845, a student visited relatives in Boston where he was exposed to smallpox. Smallpox soon spread among the community, and although no one died, almost one-third of the population was quarantined. More students withdrew from school. By 1846, 
Only about 65 residents and a dozen students remained. In March, the incomplete and uninsured main building caught fire and burned to the ground in two hours. Within a few months, only 30 residents remained and virtually all of the students were gone. The following year, bankruptcy proceedings were completed. Brook Farm was no more. Ripley went to work for Horace Greeley in the New York Tribune. He later published a tremendously successful New American Cyclopedia and paid off all the debts. Brook Farm lasted from 1841 until 1847, but Ripley's dream of a Unitarian transcendentalist utopia had failed. Shortly after Brook Farm was founded, Aidan Ballou established another utopian community, Hopedale. Ballou envisioned a pacifist cooperative community that would incorporate productive farming and industrial activities among a group of committed Christians. Ballou was almost 40 years old when he began this enterprise, having served seven years as a universalist minister and another 11 years in a Unitarian church. He had become a radical reformer, supporting the abolition of slavery, the temperance crusade against alcohol, equal rights for women, and pacifism. He believed in what was labeled practical Christianity, a movement that supported Christian doctrine as closely related to the early primitive church as possible. In 1841, he organized and became president of Fraternal Communion No. 1, a society dedicated to Christian living in a community setting. A joint stock company was organized at $50 per share with a promise of a 4% annual return on the investment. The largest investors were Anna and Ebenezer Draper. With the money they raised, they purchased a 600-acre farm just west of Milford, Massachusetts, and christened it Hopedale. Members of the Hopedale community agreed to a constitution that stated the following, I believe in the religion of Jesus Christ, as he taught and exemplified it according to the scripture of the New Testament. In addition... They pledged that they would never assault, injure, slander, envy, or hate any human, or serve in the armed forces, use liquor, file a suit in court, or vote. They chose to withdraw from society. Personally, they were also committed to never indulge in covetousness, deceit, idleness, or even an unruly tongue. Thirty-two men and women signed this rather strict Christian pledge as they began their life at Hopedale. In March 1842, 28 individuals, about one-third of whom were children, occupied the Hopedale farm. All 28 moved into the same old house. They were expected to work 60 hours a week during the summer and 48 hours a week during the winter, and work they did. That first summer, they planted 10 acres in potatoes and beans, four acres in corn, and three acres in other vegetables. They repaired the old buildings, erected a new one, and opened a school for the children. Every two weeks, two weeks they printed a paper, The Practical Christian. They began manufacturing shoes and boots. On Sundays, they had morning and afternoon church services. On Tuesdays, they had singing. On Thursdays, they had religious discussions. And on Saturdays, they met to read and discuss public papers and periodicals. Thus, they practiced their primitive, practical Christianity. Ballou would later write, quote, I longed most ardently to see New Testament Christianity actualized.
Within a few years, Hopedale had grown to 170 people and annual business meetings reflected assets of over $50,000. But conflict had crept in. Many of the newer members did not have as firm a commitment to practical Christianity as the original members. Divergent beliefs such as spiritualism, vegetarianism, and phrenology were practiced by some. Housing had always been inadequate, and as new facilities were built, people argued about who would live where. The industries did not produce the revenue expected. Unwisely, as members withdrew, they were paid for their investment and labor, further draining Hopedale of valuable financial resources. The end of Ballou's Christian experiment came in 1856 when the Drapers, the largest investors, withdrew their financial support. The community could no longer be sustained, and the Hopedale Industries became private companies. Ballou would later write of this Christian experiment, quote, It will go out to the world and down to coming generations, a laudable but ill-fated experiment, entered upon and prosecuted not to advance any selfish or unworthy interest or course, but rather to show the way of a better, truer life. In 1843, Bronson Alcott, the father of writer Louisa May Alcott, established a short-lived vegetarian community called Fruitlands. Prior to this community, Alcott had led a curious life, primarily fashioning himself as a philosopher, educator, and reformer. One historian claims he was probably the closest personal friend to both Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Born in Connecticut in a large farming family, he had little formal education, but he loved learning. After traveling to Virginia and failing to secure a job as a teacher, he returned to Connecticut and served as an innovative schoolmaster in two townships. He emphasized openness, respect, and self-expression, employing the Socratic method. Educational reformers helped him establish schools in Pennsylvania. Noted Unitarian minister Samuel Joseph May heard of Alcott and secured him a teaching position in Boston. There, Alcott met May's sister, Abigail May, and in 1830, they married. Alcott was attracted to the Unitarian faith of the Mays and for years attended William Ellery Channing's Federal Street Church, but later he drifted away from any church allegiance. In 1836, he helped organize the Transcendentalist Club. In fact, the first meeting was held in Alcott's home. He even provided the name for the first Transcendentalist paper, The Dial. That same year, he also published a rather controversial book, Conversations on the Gospels. Including in these conversations were discussions of human conception and birth. The book created a storm of protest and many parents withdrew their students from the school. Three years later, when he admitted a young black girl into the school, the remaining students withdrew and the school closed. To make ends meet, he became a day laborer and his wife and young daughters took in sewing. In the meantime, the Alcotts had become vegetarians. Emerson paid for Alcott to take a trip to England where he met other innovative educators, including Charles Lane. Lane returned to Al with Alcott to Boston and along with Abigail's brother Samuel, put up the money to buy a 90-acre farm 30 miles from Boston. During the summer of 1843, the Alcotts, with their four daughters, aged 2 to 12, along with Lane and his young son and five other adults, moved to the farm, Fruitlands. 
In spite of having only about ten apple trees, they expected to establish an orchard and grow their own food and live according to their radical vegetarian principles. The site had poor soil and was not suitable for a thriving farm. Nevertheless, they spent most of the summer plowing and planting. They planted corns, bees, potato, beans, potatoes, and carrots. They consumed no meat, eggs, milk, butter, coffee, tea, or molasses. The preferred diet was raw fruit and vegetables and cold water. Later, Alcott would even ban the growing of food that grew downward. <laughs> they felt animals should be as free as humans, and so they used no wool, honey, manure, or animal labor. In order to not be attracted by money, they tried to grow only as much as they could consume. However, they had little to worry about. <laughs> because overproduction would not be a problem at Fruitlands. <laughs> Neglecting their farm duties, Alcott and Lane traveled widely to Boston, New York, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, unsuccessfully recruiting additional members. As a result, when the grain needed to be harvested in the fall, Lane and Alcott were away, and so Abigail and the girls led the harvest. The few adults at Fruitlands were a motley crew. One resident insisted on wearing a long beard in an era when virtually all men shaved. Another was a nudist, believing that clothing was spiritually restrictive. However, he did agree to practice his nudity only at night. One resident believed that cursing and profane language elevated the spirit. So he regularly greeted people with, Good morning, damn you! One resident, an elderly female, was caught by Lane eating a piece of fish. Defending herself, she said, I only took a little bit of the tail. To which Lane replied, Yes, but the whole fish had to be tortured and killed. She packed her bags and left. By the fall of that first year, only the Alcotts and Lanes remained. When Samuel May refused to make an installment payment on the farm in January of 1844, Everyone was forced to leave Fruitlands. Alcott's dream of a vegetarian, radical community was over. It had survived less than a year. Predating these three communities by a few years was the utopian settlement of Adner Neyland called Salubria, Iowa. Neyland had been ordained as a universalist minister in 1804, and for 25 years served Universalist churches in New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and New York. Throughout his ministry, he continued to shift his theological and societal beliefs and came to support the radical beliefs of socialist reformers Robert Owen and Francis Wright. He supported women's rights, racial equality, divorce, divorce birth control, and interracial marriage. Theologically, he drifted away from Christian doctrine and came to define himself as a pantheist. In 1830, he was declared out of fellowship with the Universalists and no longer recognized as a Universalist minister. He established the Independent First Society of Free Inquirers and on Sundays normally preached to crowds of about 2,000 people. After three years, he was ultimately challenged by Universalist minister and edit editor Thomas Whittemore. In response, Neyland wrote an article which was published in the Boston Intelligencer. Neelan wrote, Universalists believe in a God which I do not. 
Universalists believe in Christ, which I do not. Universalists believe in miracles, which I do not. Universalists, universalists believe in the resurrection of the dead and eternal life, which I do not. For these statements, over a period of five years, he underwent five trials for blasphemy. Ultimately, he was convicted and in June of 1838, at the age of 64, served 80 days, 60 days in jail. Excuse me. Famously, he was the last man in this country jailed for blasphemy. While in jail, Neelan made plans to move west and establish a new community of free thinkers. He sought a community where no one would be persecuted for their religious or social beliefs. He chose the newly opened territory of Iowa for this project of free thinkers. By the spring of 1839, less than a year after his release from jail, he was in Iowa. He purchased 230 acres, setting aside 80 acres for himself, and offered the rest for sale. Friends and supporters bought 200 more acres. Ten other families soon joined him, united in their desire to free inquiry. He advertised his new community of Salubria in the Boston Intelligencer, describing the land in glowing terms. He built a large two-story house, the finest in the county, and now in his mid-sixties he had two more children by his fourth wife, the first three having died. Although Neelan was busy in his new small community, new settlers did not arrive and the land did not sell. He had not taken into consideration the Panic of 1837. A seven-year-long depression, the worst that the United States had faced up to that time. If others had planned to move to Salubria and join Neelan, there was now no money. To make ends meet, Neelan taught school, sold his livestock, and his precious 200 books. Local citizens had been tolerant of Neelan and his free thinkers and even a group of nearby Mormons. One local resident regarded the settlers at Salubria as a, merely a group of people who just read a lot of books. However, young men from the American Home Missionary Society invaded the area and reported they were, quote, a considerable body of men here who are in various degrees infected with infidelity. Of course, they were referring to Neelan and his free thinkers. As a reflection of their mindset, one uh, settler, a man by the name of Toynbee, named his son Voltaire Payne Twombly. Neelan became active in local politics, was elected county chairman of the Democratic Party, but lost in a bid for the territorial legislature. In 1842, although Neelan was not on the ticket for any office, the Democrats were attacked by their Whig opponents as the infidelity ticket. The entire slate was defeated. Two years later, at the age of 70, Neelan suffered a stroke and died. Some of his followers stayed and became absorbed in the area, but the free inquiry community of Salubria was over. Utopia. A place of ideal perfection, especially in laws, government, and social conditions. Ultimately, these four communities tied to our UU forefathers failed. What had they sought? They sought communities of free thinkers, transcendentalists, vegetarians, and practical Christians. They sought economic stability, religious freedom, and intentional communities of like-minded individuals. They sought a better, more meaningful way of life. 
They sought to set an example for others to follow. Although their experiments in living failed, their quest still resounds with us today. The question remains, how shall we live? On the one hand, I believe that Brook Farm reminds us to be open to our lifelong search for truth and meaning, to associate with those who can give us inspiration, guidance, and encouragement. If we accept the principles of George Ripley's Articles of Agreement, then we would strive to, quote, diminish the desire of excessive accumulations. Yes, we would learn the boundaries of enoughness, focus on what is truly important, and in the words of Ripley, achieve a greater freedom, simplicity, truthfulness, refinement, and moral dignity. Aidan Ballou teaches us to be true to our beliefs and to live life accordingly, wherever it may lead. Bronson Alcott should encourage us to live a life of a simplicity, not only in our choices of what we eat, but in how we treat others, animals, and the environment. Abner Nealon teaches us the value of freedom of speech and freedom of thought. For me, he also gives encouragement to persevere, no matter what your age, circumstances, or obstacles. Shall we establish our own utopia? The first UU utopia of Austin, Texas? After all, we have over 100 acres of hill country land at U-Bar-U. Perhaps we can raise our own chickens and have farm fresh eggs. Perhaps we can have beehives and have buckets of honey. After all, we do have church members who can assist us with their knowledge in those endeavors. Perhaps we can raise goats and sell goat cheese to the finest restaurants in Austin. Or perhaps we have already addressed the issue. Our mission statement says... We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. We will most likely never establish a UU utopia, but perhaps we can rise up, live out our mission, discover meaningful lives, and do good works, and have a positive impact on those about us. That in itself would almost be a utopian community. May it be so. As a benediction, I would offer the words of Theodore Parker. Be ours a religion which, like sunshine, goes everywhere. Its temple, all space. Its shrine, the good heart. Its creed, all truth. Its ritual, works of love. Its profession of faith, divine living. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.